Hello, I'm Joanna Lumley. I'm in my garden in London, and I'm walking down the garden path to the music room. In there, I'll find my husband, the composer and conductor, Stephen Barlow. Now, we've been married almost 40 years, and I think, however long you've been with someone, you have questions that you'd like to ask your partner. So this podcast is my chance to ask Stephen the questions I've always wanted to ask him about one of his and my greatest passions, classical music. Welcome to Joanna and the Maestro. Hello, Maestro. Hello, and welcome to this episode of Joanna and the Maestro. Maestro, today we're covering one of my favourite subjects, and I believe one of yours as well, brass bands. I love brass bands. We've got the flight path overhead, but we don't care, because what we want to talk about is brass bands. (laughs) Tell me, first of all, when did somebody first call them or recognise them as a brass band? The brass band itself as an item emerged at the beginning of the 19th century, 1810, 1820. And they seem to have grown from the major mines, collieries, and the major companies. I've seen some inference that one of the reasons they were doing this was to bring workers together into a sort of community involvement together, a project, so that they wouldn't necessarily be gathering to discuss grievances of, you know, in the Industrial Revolution, for example, workers had a terrible time. But the people, the miners, would not necessarily know how to play a tuba or a euphonium or anything. But there were musicians in the community. Amateur music making was rife. And we know that from singing in pubs, choirs, and so on. Of course, there weren't records or radio or anything in those days, so you made your own music. Absolutely. And so just to name a few others, Black Dyke Mills. Mm. So that was from a huge... paper mills? Yes, yes. yes. And in the north, Mm. predominantly in the north. And then something like the Brighouse and Rastrick Band, which is another top band, was not sponsored. So they would find funding in other ways from uh, asking people to pay to come and hear them play. So that's where they began. When did you first ever hear a brass band, I wonder? I was on tour with Private Lives and three of us, we were playing Leeds and Bradford and we'd taken a little sort of rented tiny house where three of us shared, and the back of it went onto those lovely alleys, back-to-back alleys. And one Sunday morning, after we'd done two shows, we were up there because we were going to be playing the next week up there as well. So we stayed up there on Sunday, and on the Sunday morning, I heard the most literally heavenly sound. And I rushed out to the back, and they're marching down the alley, marching, Mm. but I mean not marching, walking, coming down the alley, was a brass band, a local brass band. It was fantastically lovely. That's the first time I heard one, as it were, live and didn't sort of pay to go to see it or make a point of it. It was just there and playing. Gosh, I was hoping you might say... Oh, damn. ...where we all hear brass bands every Christmas. Yes. And who is that? It's the Salvation Army. Salvation Army. Salvation Army have a wonderful pedigree in brass players and brass bands. And it's not like the early brass bands. It's not strictly related only to males, men. 
So the techniques get passed on. Now, you see, you've got to think about how these instruments are actually played. Mm. And I don't think we've ever talked about that because what we see are different lengths of tubes and the shorter the length of the tube, the higher the instrument. So the trumpet has very few circles of brass or silver because mm. there are silver bands and brass bands. And the first thing you do with someone wanting to learn a brass instrument is that you present them with the mouthpiece and you say, spit. And the thing is that that then leads you on to discovering a note. And then it's the control of that note that matters. Does this go for even the huge things like euphoniums as well as cornets? All the mouthpieces are shaped the same. Yeah. But for a very small, what are we talking about, a soprano cornet, a very small trumpet, the instrument you always hear playing very high and perhaps with a little vibrato on top of an ensemble of brass instruments, that mouthpiece will be very small. Mm. But on a double bass tuba, which plays notes down at the bottom of the piano, the mouthpiece is absolutely huge. So, so the process of teaching would have been handed down and you would take an instrument home and you would practice. Then you would go to the weekly rehearsal and you'd be put in the line and learn gradually to play and gradually the better you got, you would go up the line. Is there a sort of senior instrument, the one which everybody has to play along with? Well, every section has a principal. But what I mean is that... The soloist. They call it the solo position. If they're all tuned into different keys, is there one key to which all the other instruments have to bow down and fall Well, the piece of music is written in D or F or G or different keys. And they can all play all of those. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the pistons mean that they can all play the notes notes of all the scales. The great Terry Wogan beloved by many people, I didn't laugh holding my sides when he sang the floral dance. Oh, I remember. Because with, I remembered with, it with, with that the good, wonderful brass band. But I do remember the words from it, which was, I thought I could hear the curious tone of the cornet, clarinet, and big trombone, fiddle, cello, big bass drum, bassoon, flute, and euphonium. But they've got in a fiddle and a cello there. So... Well, yes, but, you, but that, uh, thinking of it. Sorry, thinking of it as a floral dance, presumably the dance. So that's people who would, who would rock up to play at a particular festival or fete or fair or something. Yes, and they wouldn't be marching and they wouldn't be going somewhere, and they no. wouldn't be playing in church probably because it's a no. floral dance. Well, it was a huge success. Huge. I thought I could hear the curious tone of the cornet, clarinet, and big trombone. Fiddle, cello, big bass drum, bassoon, flute, and euphonium. Far away, as in a trance, I heard the sound of the floral dance. But you think that that was not really a brass band? I mean, a lot of it had brass not, No, not no, strictly. not technically. We actually know an awful lot more about brass bands than people think. Because, of course, the military have their own bands and we see the full glory of how virtuosic and extraordinary they are. I remember when you got your OBE and we went to Buckingham Palace. Yeah. And at that time, the partners were sitting all together in a sort of 
in the stalls. In the huge ballroom, yes. And upstairs mm. in the balcony was, I wish I could remember which one, it would have been a special one, mm. or attached in some way to the palace, was a brass band. And they played throughout the ceremony, yeah. but they played so softly. Mm. Well, when we think of the 11th of November, yes. Armistice Day, Yes. And the great Nimrod and things played so yes. beautifully and quietly at the cenotaph. Yes. We hear we hear that. So we we recognize all those huge brass instruments. That's a brass band, isn't it? Yes. Now you see, we always associate orchestras with brass being absolutely huge and loud. Yes. No, 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 loud. Mm. And you talked about brass players in a previous podcast as being perhaps boisterous, <laughs> using that euphemism. But the point is that brass bands have a vast dynamic range. They can play just as softly as woodwind and they can play much louder than the woodwind and much louder than the strings. When a brass band opens up mm. and really, like at the end of Elgar's Nimrod with the big crescendo, the sound is overwhelming. Yeah. So they have this vast range of dynamic and they can also play incredibly fast virtuosic music. It's a brass band that plays on the news quiz, isn't it? Is it the news quiz? They are just phenomenally virtuosic. And because they can play so softly, people can sing with them as well, can't they? Oh, yes. And that great, memorable, fabulous, never-to-be-forgotten Peter Scallon. Yes, we're sort of jumping the gun. Why? Really. Well, because the point about brass bands is that they have so many functions. They can play all sorts of music. They can play marches, they can play symphonic music, they can play arrangements. Percy Granger wrote something called the Lincolnshire Posy, which is a wonderful set of English folk songs arranged for, well, composed for, a concert band, which is fundamentally brass, but with saxophones and a double bass. We played it at school and it's incredibly moving. They're brilliant music. We'd love to hear from you, our lovely listeners. So if you've got questions, comments or suggestions, please get in touch on hello at joannaandthemaestro.com. Thank you. These guys are brilliant musicians. They rehearse incredibly efficiently. In the old days, they would have met every week, once a week, and then competitions began. So they would have to have a repertoire of music to show off their legato and their beautiful musicality, their ensemble, 
you imagine a band can be as many as 28, 29, 30 players. And they'd rehearse in church halls or their local community hall, wherever they had a space. And they would then play show-off pieces, virtuosic pieces with very fast stuff and changing dynamics and different kinds of expression. And then, of course, they'd compete. And that came in around the middle of the 19th century, competition after competition. The uh, famous competition is the Durham Miners Gala. I think that still exists. And, of course, Brassed Off. Do you remember Brassed Off, that wonderful film? Yes, I love that. So moving. When they have to move about, I mean, when they're playing in competition or in concerts, they've got music on a stand. But when they march or walk, they've got to have the music in front of them. And there seems so little space to write the music that they must play. And what if they have to change it? How do they move the card or how does that work? It's very, very carefully worked out so that every piece will not take more than one sheet. And it's a small, well, I'm guessing, but it seems to be about half the size of an A4 page, Mm. maybe even smaller. But it's got to be quite stern, stiff paper, Rigid, so it, but it is held on. So, yes. so the little stand is fixed to the instrument in front of your eyes. But then there will be moments when you quickly change the page. And I've watched, but I can't quite see exactly how they do it. They must do it in a very smart fashion. But in the main, they would play a piece that can be covered on one sheet and they would know it very well. Yeah, And of course, sometimes these boys... Uh, I mean, it's slightly different than the mounted brass band. So they're not only riding a horse. What do they do that? Keeping in line with all the other horses and going where they're supposed to go and controlling your animal. You've where seen... they've got all the big noise. I know the horses are, made to, uh, are accustomed to the sound of the music. But then you've got the music, which you're reading as well. And you're playing an instrument. And so presumably you're sort of, I don't know, the whole thing is they become gods. They become centaurs, these creatures. Honestly, the technique is phenomenal for me. How do they do that on a moving horse? It is extraordinary. Absolutely amazing. Have you played a brass instrument? Yes, I did. I learnt the French horn for a year when I was 12. Is that because you wanted to get a scholarship with it to get into the next school, was Yes. It? Did you well, get I was told to do it. Yes, I did. Um, is it normal to learn a French horn up to scholarship level in a year? Well, well done, Barlow. I, no, I no. Well it, done, it did, actually, little it boy. Did not, I did not emerge as a virtuoso horn player after a year. I was fascinated enough by it to learn how to play it. So I knew how it worked. But when I went up to King's when I was 13, King's Canterbury, I gave that up and concentrated on the keyboard and I started messing around with the trombone instead. But I didn't play that in any orchestras. I just wanted to know how it worked and find out, you know, what sounds you can make on it and just how it worked. But don't forget what I said about youngsters in the Salvation Army being given an instrument and told very simple instructions and then you would just go away and practice a bit. And you would learn to play with the three pistons because it's not like a violin where you have to make all your notes with different hand positions. And, you know, there are three pistons and you learn the harmonic sequence and you, you begin to associate a particular note with a particular feeling on your mouth. So it has to be slightly tighter, the higher the note. And then which note is it? Ah, it's both 
the first and second piston down. Does that mean they can't play out of tune? No. We talk about lipping something up or lipping something down. You can slightly alter the note with your embouchure, your lips on the mouthpiece. You can slightly alter the note. I love the sound of the baffle. That's not the right word, is it? That you put into the throat of a trumpet to make it quiet and... Oh, the mute. The mute. And oh, and the and when they when they have the wah wah when they can fan that. Yeah, the wah wah. The wah wah. The wah wah. Which mute. is what? What is that? You will. That's. that's is it just your hand, or is it? Little, um, is it metal? You you also have a. It might be the, or is that the Harmon mute? There are so many mutes. I get confused. Yes, there are many many different mutes, but that's not really the terrain of a brass band. No. Except in Peter Skellen's wonderful album of Astaire's songs, which he did with the Grimethorpe Colliery Band and a wonderful choir, which he called the Crikey Choir, (laughs) (laughs) which is a kind of a Hollywood backing choir. Sounds wonderful. Sounds like angels singing. Just the way you look tonight. And then the Grimethorpe Colliery steps up and plays wonderful early Hollywood style and Nelson Riddle effects, you know, the rhythmic effects that you hear with big band. But that's another subject, big band. Have you composed for a brass band as opposed to a full orchestra? No. Why haven't I done that? Well, Could you put your mind to it, please? Well, actually, because what I wanted to say actually about Brass bands has something to do with that. Why not? There are something like 1,100 or 1,200 brass bands in this country alone. Now, that includes Northern Ireland, where silver bands, I think, they are in Northern Ireland. Northern Ireland has a huge band history, probably going back to the same time. And in Wales, of course, Tredega, they have a famous brass band, 1,200 brass bands. And at the last count, there's about 30,000 band members in this country. What do orchestral players think of these brass band players? Do they see them as equals? Uh, Respect. Yeah. Absolute respect. But stand up and salute. It's something to do with their efficiency and search for perfection. Now, classical musicians have always been interested in brass band tradition. So, for example, Elgar Howarth, the well-known conductor, He wrote and arranged music for the Grimethorpe Colliery Band. Just listen to Mosaic. It's rich and complex, arresting, and sounds extremely modern. specialised in contemporary music mainly, but he was a trumpet player and he got so interested in it, he landed up as the music director of the Grimethorpe Colliery Band. 
Elgar Howth was invited. The brass band wanted a well-known conductor to take their game, you know, even further. Because there's a, a slight, Snobbism. slightly crude snobbery? snobbery. The word bandmaster is used as a, sometimes a bit of a put you down, well, put conductors down <laughs> in, in my world. If somebody has gone, oh, he's just a bandmaster. But this is not so good because a bandmaster, a director of music of a brass band, in the old meaning, would have been somebody very respected in the community who brought young talent on. He would devise best seating for everybody. He would choose the positions and he would be someone the band talked to individually. And he was someone respectable in the community. Probably a musician himself, probably a player. Oh, have to. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. And certainly a teacher. Mm. So it's not really fair to demean that, but their interest in the highest standards, this is your point really about how do we feel about them in the professional world, because predominantly they're amateurs, they do it for love. We have the utmost respect for them. What they achieve is quite extraordinary. And let it be said, symphony orchestras do not go to competitions to try and enhance their reputation. Brass bands all go for gold, silver, and bronze in these big, big competitions, like Brassed Off. That's the way it happens. Albert Hall, packed. And the bands come on one by one, and someone's going to win. In an orchestra, what is that very high flute called? The, the, the high flute, piccolo. Oh, the piccolo. Do you have piccolos in marching bands? Or tin whistles? In marching bands, or, yes. Or in, in so, marching bands, so yes. in American marching bands, you yeah. know, Sousa. Do you remember yes. Sousa? You Those Sousa marches are absolutely wonderful. That was Monty Python, by the way. They used that for the opening of Monty Python. That's a slightly different breed. And a marching band, that's massive. Yes. You have, what, half a dozen trombones and several piccolo players. And theirs is really to make a big noise and march down a huge street in big America and to, and to make right. a, right. a, a ticker tape thing. reception would have, sure. would have the and marching band. And you might bands. have those girls marching with the pom-poms. And, and, uh, exactly right. Yeah. Exactly right. <laughs> I love it. Do you think that brass bands will continue in this country? I, well, with 1,200, 11, 1,200 of them so they surviving must be, now. Even though the coal mines have shut and the big no, mills no, have fallen that's silent. That's precisely the point. It is a way of melding a community. And it is a way for younger people to begin to learn an instrument. And you can only look up to the players in one of these bands now. They're phenomenal in their achievement. Mm. Obviously, they're appreciated by their communities and they make recordings of all kinds of music. I mean, people should have a look around for them. It's not just about functionality, you know, providing ceremony. It's much more about community coming together in an ensemble where there is one aim. And believe you me, to be able to play together in one of those ensembles with the differing sizes of mouthpiece, because the tuba takes longer to speak than the cornet because of the length of the tube. Imagine the wind that has to go through it. You see tuba players breathing a lot more often than you do cornet players. They can play on one breath for a long time, but tuba players have to <gasps> gasp a huge breath <laughs> nearly all the time. We've got to come to an end. Oh. I know we want to go on talking, talking, but we've got to come to an end. Tell me the piece that you wanted to play us out. Well, Describe it's it. from the Lincolnshire Posey, and I'm torn now because 
in Brassed Off, they do a version of the Rodrigo Concerto de Aranjuez, which is so extraordinarily touching. And I think that's the Grimethorpe Colliery Band doing the real playing behind that film. The Lincolnshire Posey is for a concert band, really. It's not a brass band. Well, let's have the brass band. So to hear the Grimethorpe Colliery playing the Rodrigo Concerto de Aranjuez, the slow movement, which was originally written for guitar, of course, and then harp, to hear it played by a brass band with a cornet solo, it melts your heart. The effect of a brass band playing so softly, it's so soulful. been listening to Joanna and the Maestro, a cup and nozzle, burning bright productions and Bauer media show. It's presented by me, Joanna Lumley, and my husband, Stephen Barlow. Our executive producers are Matt Everett, Graham Hodge and Clive Tullow. The show is produced and edited by Hunter Charlton and mix and mastering is by David Bloor. Our head of production is Rebecca Mills. Our production manager is Sarah Anderson. And our production coordinator is Maxim Taylor. All music for the intros is supplied courtesy of Naxos Music UK. In this episode, you heard the following music. The Floral Dance, arranged by Katie Moss and performed by Terry Wogan. The record label was Chappelle & Co. Enigma Variations, Opus 36, 10, Nimrod. Written by Sir Edward Elgar and performed by Sir Andrew Davis. The BBC Symphony Chorus, the BBC Symphony Orchestra Choir of New College, Oxford, Edward Higginbottom, Jean-Francois Pellard, and the Jean-Francois Pellard Chamber Orchestra. The record label was Warner Classics. The Lincolnshire Posey, Hawkstow Grange. Written by Percy Granger and performed by Allstate MS Band. Conducted by Timothy Marr. The record label was Soundwaves Recording. The Way You Look Tonight. Written by Dorothy Fields and Jerome Kern. Performed by Peter Skellen. The publishers were Universal Music Publishing Limited and Shapiro Bernstein & Co. Limited. The record label was BMG Records. Mosaic. Written by Elgar Howarth and performed by the Grimethorpe Colliery. The publisher was Novello & Co. Limited and the record label was Decca Music Group. Concerto de Aranjes. Second Movement, Adagio, written by Joaquin Rodrigo and performed by the Grimethorpe Colliery Band with Trevor Jones. The publisher was Ediciones Joaquin Rodrigo. The record label was RCA Victor.